Hello, my name is Curtis Spieler, and I am here in the Vinegar Syndrome building doing the audio commentary for the movie you're watching, New York Ninja. Um, so there's a lot to cover in this audio commentary, but um, before we get too far, I just kind of wanted to give a brief history about the movie. Um, I'm sure a lot of you already know this, but this movie was, was originally shot in 1984 and was never finished. And um, fast forward about 35 years or so, and Vinegar Syndrome has all the original unedited camera rolls in her film archive. I start working for the company, I find this out, and then I talk to the owners and get them to agree to let me finish the project. And uh, here we are. So uh, I had no script to work from at the time, and I had nothing to really tell me how this movie was originally supposed to be. Uh, other than the actual camera rolls themselves and the slate at the beginning of the film. This was all silent. I had no uh, sound elements. They had been lost over time. So really, I had sort of no idea how to put this movie together. And I'll talk about that more as we go along. Uh, I just wanted to cover, while the scene is going on, uh, the, the wife there on the right... Uh, the, the person that's doing her voice is uh, Ginger Lynn, who I'm sure a lot of you, if you're fans of Vinegar Syndrome, know exactly who she is. Um, so we were able to get a number of genre actors who had been in other um, Vinegar Syndrome projects to come in and do the voices for this, which was really cool. Um, Ginger Lynn was kind of a last minute addition. Uh, we had um, this company called 3Beep that did a lot of the ancillary voices and uh, they had already had somebody who played the, the, the wife and she was fine. She sounded great. There was no issue with the performance. It was just one of those things where um, we wanted to kind of get as many uh, different actors as we could to represent, you know, the types of films that Vinegar Syndrome puts out. And of course, Ginger Lynn is known for doing adult films as well as mainstream films. And we've put out a number of her releases. And so we brought her in and, you know, she was great. I mean, all the, all the uh, people who came in to do all the voices, they were all great. Um, but I, I do have to say Ginger like surprised me. She came in and she was super professional and uh, I really enjoyed working with her. And I'm, I'm glad she was a last minute addition, but it worked out really well. This is a funny little anecdote here because when she was dying, you know, we did a lot of these sessions remotely um, because this was all done during COVID. Um, so we would do the, the sessions uh, like I would be here at the Vinegar Syndrome building, um, 3Beep, which was in New York, handling a lot of the sound work. They were in New York and then we would connect to a studio wherever the actor was. And Ginger Lynn was, uh, hold on, <laughs> I love that little uh, the symbolism with I love New York and then boom this music cue is killer um, Voyager 3 just killed the music on this I, I love this I love this intro I love these credits we tried to make them look as retro as possible um, we tried our best to kind of stay true to the time period as much as we, we could with this movie so I'll talk about more of that as we go along but back to uh, Ginger anyway we we uh, we were connected with her in Nevada doing her session. And so I couldn't see her. We were only communicating uh, through the remote session. And so I can only hear her and see the um, the video reference as it was playing. And so when you're doing a lot of ADR and dubbing, you know, you have to do a lot of takes of things. And, I, you know, Ginger, uh, she had to do that death scene that you just saw a little bit ago. And it was pretty funny because, you know, it's a lot of moaning and grunting. And, uh, you know, she was she was doing a bunch of different sounds and all of a sudden in the middle of it, she just stops and she goes, does this sound like I'm dying or does this sound like I'm having sex, which was really funny. And 
I think the sound engineer said there's a very thin line between the two when you're doing this stuff. Uh, any kind of moaning and, <laughs> and grunting always kind of sounds like either sex or death. So, um, But sex and death is what Vinegar Syndrome is known for, so I guess it kind of works out. But anyway, uh, like I said, uh, Ginger was great, and uh, she was a last-minute addition, and I'm really glad we brought her in. Um, so let me see here. So this scene, this scene goes on for a little bit. So let me talk a little bit more about how this came to be. I know I, I touched upon it briefly already, but uh, again, so New York Ninja was shot in 1984. Who you're seeing on the screen now is a man named John Liu. Um, John Liu did a lot of martial arts films back in the 70s. Um, he wasn't one of like the biggest names, but uh, he was well-respected. Um, he did a movie called The Secret Rivals, which I'm a big fan of, and uh, that movie probably got him the most recognition. Um, another movie called Invincible Armor. So, you know, he did some martial arts films in the 70s. He eventually got into directing his own low-budget martial arts films in, like, I, I think the early 80s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. And I think this was his third film. Uh, hold on, I'm gonna stop here for a second because this 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 scene right here is the best. Whenever I'm worried about whether or not somebody's gonna like this movie, I know if I've got them when this happens. If they laugh when he breaks the table here, I, I know I know they're in. I know that they've gotten it. Um, you know, this movie is wacky. It's silly. You know, we know exactly what it is, and. Uh, you know, there's there almost every scene. There's another like what the hell moment kind of going on, um, but you know, for the for the first few minutes here, you're not quite sure what this is, and when you get to that part with when he breaks the table, um, I think at that point people know exactly what the movie is. So if they respond with laughing or or just whatever kind of response they have, I know usually at that point I, I have them, and uh, it's great to watch that with uh, with an audience or with uh, other people. So. Anyway, um, yes, I, I was this supposed to be a comedy? I couldn't really tell you, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure it's really a comedy now. I just think it's humorous. Um, I think John's acting is sort of over the top and very uh, dramatic at times. And I don't know if that was intentional, you know. Uh, I, I, I couldn't really tell you. And, you know, we'll talk about the tone more as we go along. But, you know, back to John, he... Um, you know, he was involved in a lot of martial arts films and it got into directing. And then this this was his last film. Uh, I think he had done maybe three directing gigs up until this one. And uh, none of them had really done so well. And uh, I don't know if he was hoping that this would be a different film for him because it was an American production. Um, but from what we found out, there was some problems on set. And uh, the problems mostly being that, or at least from what we've been told, is that, uh, you know, John kind of went rogue. Like, there was a script, and we'll talk more about the script later. Um, there was a script, but he didn't really follow the script. Um, we've heard from some of the actors who we were able to get in touch with that they had a script, or sorry, weren't even given a script on the days of shooting. Um, sometimes they were they would just show up and be given the lines. And, uh, and so, you know, from what we were told, he, he kind of just sort of went off script a lot and um i will say i i guess maybe i can bring this up now um eventually i got a hold of a script 
uh, not right away. It wasn't until after we were done with this cut when we were putting the behind the scenes together, uh, we found uh, Carl Morano who worked as, uh, he did some effects on the film. He actually had a script and from what I could gather, it's the only script that exists. Uh, looks like either John's notes were on there or the cinematographer, uh, Stephen Ning, um, because there was definitely some uh, Chinese writing and uh but i believe it was john's script and i'm guessing it's the only script that exists and uh after reading the script there was a lot of differences uh even if i had the script early on i i couldn't have put the movie back together the way that it was on the page not only because they hadn't finished shooting a lot of things but just because many things were different so anyway back to uh the production itself so from what we were told you know it didn't go well. Uh, there's a lot of changes and I think there was money issues and all, you know, all the stuff that goes along with uh, low budget filmmaking. Um, the company that was producing, it was a company called 21st century distribution. Um, they, they were kind of known for, I think doing a lot of theatrical distribution here in the U S and they had been, uh, I guess getting some success with uh, like low budget action films and martial arts films. And so, uh, Arthur Schweitzer, who was, I, I believe, one of the owners of 21st Century Distribution at the time, um, he was the one who sort of put this project together to do sort of an, an original production. And, you know, they brought in John and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the movie just uh, didn't really work out. Um, I'm gonna pause here for a second, and I'm just going to talk about what's on the screen. Uh, so <laughs> this is all really interesting because... Keep in mind, I had silent picture when I had to edit this. And if you kind of look at the dialogue, um, or at least the way some of these dialogue scenes are edited, there's a bit of choppiness to it. Sometimes, sometimes that's my fault. Sometimes that's really, I only had certain things to work with. So if you go back and you watch, especially the opening scene, um, when the twin towers, uh, when they pan down from the, uh, no, not pan, but boom down from the, uh, twin towers. And, uh, you see, uh, John and Lou, yeah, John, Lou and Nita, uh, you'll, you'll see that like, he'll give a line and it'll cut to her and then she'll give a line and it'll cut back to him. And that's kind of how they, how they shot it. Like they would roll the camera and they would get one line and then move the camera and get another line. And they did that a lot with this scene as well too. Most of the dialogue scenes, they would sort of capture, you know, one line, then move the camera, get another line or, or whatever, or they would hold it for the whole time. It was one or the other, which left me with very little coverage to work with. So sometimes you'll see it's, it's kind of a little choppy or, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, I, I did the best with the footage that I could, um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, again, sometimes I had to run scenes all the way through if there was no coverage, you know, if it was like a two shot, like, uh, the helicopter scene at the beginning with the, with the news boss, you know, that whole thing runs from top to bottom. There was no coverage. So if I wanted to keep that scene, I had to let that scene run from the top to bottom and then, you know, figure out the dialogue. Um, other scenes, you know, if they did cut, I was, I was sort of stuck to whatever, however they jumped the camera around and so what I did a lot of times was just try to cut the smoothest edit as possible and if the edit was smooth I would worry about the dialogue later on I wanted to just kind of get it you know as smooth as possible and you know my intention 
with this entire movie was to make it as good as possible. You know, I'm I'm well aware that the movie is silly and over the top and all this other kind of stuff, but um I really wanted to take the material seriously and treat it as seriously as possible. <clears throat> I uh excuse me, I sort of imagined myself um being an editor back in 1984 and being given this film and being told, "Hey, we had problems with the production. Like we need you to finish this. So I looked at it as like, okay, this is, this is my opportunity to make a 1980s movie. Like that's so cool. Nobody really gets that opportunity. It's almost like uh, time traveling, if you will, you know? So I was able to, to kind of put myself in that mind frame of going back in time and being like, Hey, you've got to fix this picture and thinking like, Hey, this movie's awesome. It's a ninja movie. It's going to do really well. So, like, I wanted to take it as seriously as possible. I'm well having the knowledge of, like, a modern audience and knowing that a movie like this will do well with a modern audience. Um, you know, if this had come back, if this had come out back in 1984, it probably wouldn't have done well. Um, maybe it would have a cult following or whatever, but it probably would have fallen into obscurity. I love this shot, by the way. That's probably the best shot of the movie. Um it probably would have fallen into obscurity, but, uh, you know, like a lot of things is almost ages, like a fine wine, you know, modern audiences love like retro stuff. They love movies like Miami connection and samurai cop and things like that, where you can laugh at the movie with the movie and have a good time. And I believe that this fully falls in this category. I mean, look at this, even right here, you know, he's, he's thinking, acting, and then bites the cufflink for no reason. I, I don't, I don't know what that is, but I, I love it. And you know, that was a big thing for me was balancing, you know, when to keep the humor and, and when not to, and, uh, and, and trying to show as many things as they were going to do. Like when the character I call rat tail takes in, um, you know, pulls his little rat tail around when he's sitting in the car and bites it. I don't know what the hell that is, but it's funny and it's entertaining and it's what they wanted to do so it's what I tried to keep you know um so really deciding how much to let go versus how much to keep was was definitely a a, a balance but anyway so you know the original production um failed for whatever reasons and we were told that uh you know, it, they were shooting in the fall of 84 and then, you know, there was problems with the shooting. Then it got to like the winter. It was like December, I think, when they were still shooting some of it. And so I think they called it for a little bit and we're going to regroup and, you know, finish the basically the ending, the helicopter stuff, which we'll talk about when we get there. Um, but, uh, you know, that that was the plan. And I think, you know, for a number of reasons, they kind of just let it go. And then in 85, I don't know exactly when, but I think 21st century started having, um, you know, financial issues. And we were told that Canon was going to come in and sort of take over. And, uh, I think they had cut like a little sizzle reel to try to present to Canon to try to get funding to finish this movie. And uh, ultimately Canon passed. And because of that, the film sort of just fell into obscurity. I think Arthur Schweitzer ended up with the rights at some point. And then, uh, as time went on, you know, it was forgotten. Fast forward, vinegar syndrome becomes involved. 
Um, Ralph Stevens, who's one of the owners here, cuts like a deal with uh, Arthur Schweitzer some, for some of his films, and this just kind of gets thrown into the mix. And uh, yeah, hold on, let's see here. I like this little this. Well, <clears throat> I'm gonna pause again. Sorry. And this was the very first stuff that I saw. So when we scanned the footage, well, I'm I'm jumping ahead slightly. Um, Listen, I'm just going to say that this is the very first stuff I saw. And when I saw this, I knew we had something. And that's a, that's all I'm going to say for now. I'm going to keep going with a little background on the movie itself. Um, but yeah, so uh, New York Ninja get, just got thrown into the mix with, uh, with the deal with 21st Century. And uh, nobody really knew what to do with this because we got a bunch of original camera rolls. Well, I wasn't working for the company at the time, but we got a bunch of original camera rolls that were silent for an unfinished movie. Um, all the sound elements had been lost. And so nobody really knew what to do with it. And it, and it ended up in the film archive. Fast forward to me starting to work there. Uh, I started working with Vinegar Syndrome, I think in 2018, if I remember right. Yeah, 2018. And I find out that we have this movie, New York Ninja. I actually found out on the very first day working there. And uh, so I found out that this movie existed and I was like, oh man, I would love to edit this back together. But I found out A, it's unfinished and B, there's no sound. So, you know, I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have many options. I thought, yeah, there's no way they're gonna let me finish this thing. So, you know, even I kind of let it go for a while. And, um, sorry. And uh, so, you know, I went on, uh, I was working here for about a year or so. I was working on my third low-budget uh, feature. I've done a couple of low-budget horror movies. At the time, I was working on one called The Dead Girl in Apartment 3. And I was finishing that up. And uh, this was about a year of me working at Vinegar Syndrome. And I was like, okay, well, what can I do for another project? And then I thought about New York Ninja. So I went to the owners and I asked them, would they be willing to let me finish the movie, which they agreed. And here we are. So I'll go into more of that in a minute. So this is a prime example. So you see how they're just kind of walking and the camera's walking with them. I was I was stuck with, you know, basically that whole scene. But they actually shot more dialogue here. They just jumped the camera around while they were moving. And it really didn't work at all. And it wasn't like they were trying to get extra coverage. It was just meant to sort of go from that one shot to jump to another shot like that was all the dialogue for that for one part and then it was supposed to jump to another camera angle with all, with more dialogue um i love this i don't <laughs> i'm sure when uh when you get angry and stressed out this is what you do too just run into poles until you get angry and uh jump in the air and scream <laughs> um anyway uh you know so you know I, back to the coverage there was very little coverage in that scene and, and it really didn't work so i had to sort of cut that the smoothest as i possibly could and you know i, th I think it worked um i i think uh you know you see how they were walking and the cameras following them and then it, it i had to find a point where they kind of stop and then cut in those next shots but you know again the the only thing that i could go off of so when i started editing this the only thing that i could go off of was the slate at the beginning of each shot so you know for those that don't really understand you know when i say original camera rolls this is all the i had all the footage that they shot for the movie um every take so it was like you would have a scene 
and you would have as many takes as they did within that scene and then the camera would move and then they would have more stuff so i had all of that i had all the raw original footage now again none of it had any sound but i had it oh by the way um this is sharon mitchell sitting there to the right um she's an adult uh film actress some of you may recognize her um she had a little scene in here uh which was interesting um, there's actually a little bit more to this scene. Uh, you can see it in the deleted scenes on this, uh, on this disc. Um, I'll talk about that more, uh, why I cut some of this out. You'll, uh, there's actually a number of scenes I cut out of this movie. This movie, when I did the first, uh, cut, it was actually well over two hours and I had to cut about a uh, half hour or so out of this movie. Um, so the rest of that scene is one of the things that went along with subsequent other scenes. And, um, I will uh, I will talk about that more uh, later on. Um, oh yeah, you know I'm going to talk about this too while I'm here. So you know, with stuff like this, I would just find this footage, and I have no idea what this was for. You know, was this supposed to be an opening credit sequence? I, I don't know. I you know, if it's if it's not slated, which some of it was, some of it wasn't. I would have no idea where some of this stuff goes. So you know, I would just take this footage and and use it you know, for a little montage of him sort of now becoming the ninja, you know? So, um, but yeah, so, you know, I would go through the movie and I would have all these raw takes and uh, I would have to sit there and, you know, this, we scanned all the film in digitally. So we took the film, we put it on our film scanner, we scanned, uh, we took the film and scanned it and made a digital version of it. And, uh, when we made the digital version, I would then sit down and go through all the film reels and kind of find each scene, find uh, the slate at the beginning and sort of separate everything out into its scene and its takes. Um, it's what you do with sort of with any movie. Uh, the difference is like I had nobody to talk to. About. I love this reveal of the ninja right there. That's that's great. Um, so, you know, I had nobody to talk to. I, again, had no script at the time because we didn't find it till much, much later. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have it because it would have made things actually even more complicated because there was a number of scenes that weren't shot and a number of things that just, you know, were supposed to be extended or different or whatever. And so the script was basically worthless anyway. It probably just would have made things extra complicated. Um, but so all I could do was sit there and kind of go through the footage and I would just take notes. I, I spent, you know, months doing this, working nights and weekends of just kind of going through the footage, uh, separating it all out. And as I would separate it out, I would get a feel for the scene and I would kind of have an idea. I mean, granted, they didn't do a lot of takes, which was good and bad. It didn't give me a lot of coverage to work with, but at the same time, you know, made the editing somewhat simpler. I just had to try to make things work at this point, you know? So I was, I was given, um, you know, I was given this footage with very little coverage and I had to try to figure out how to make it. Sorry, I'm distracted because you all know what's coming up right here. I mean, this, this again, like uh, freaking ninja on roller skates. I mean, if you're not in, if you're not into this movie at this point, then I, I, don't, I don't know what your problem is. Cause <laughs> this is amazing. This is amazing. Um, I just love too that they just shot this like raw in New York City. Everybody's like looking around, like, why is there a ninja on roller skates? Who the hell are these guys? Why are they dressed like that? You know, it, it, it's so good. It's so good. Um, 
yeah. So, you know, I only had, uh, you know, I only had so much coverage to work with. And so I had to basically, you know, cut the best possible move that I could and then go back and write new dialogue. Now with the dialogue, we had talked about maybe bringing in somebody to, um, read the lips, but then they would have to read the lips of every single, uh, take. And not only that, but, uh, it wouldn't account for things that were set off screen and uh, there would have been a lot of issues there. And then again, I knew that we couldn't edit this movie back to its original intended version because, um, you know, okay. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. All right. So that shot there. All right. Let, let me, let me break away for a little bit and talk about the editing itself. All right. Because, the, the the tone of this movie, as we've talked about, is already kind of a little silly and, you know, over the top or whatever. Um, there's a number of times that I had to decide what I would make work and what I wouldn't uh, in terms of, like, what they did. So, like, if you saw that shot there where the, the ninja was clearly on roller skates, jumps over the car without roller skates, now he's back to roller skates. I could have easily cut that out. Like, that would have been my choice. Like, I could have had not had that flip in there at all and it would have been fine but that was a time where I thought showing sort of like their bad filmmaking because that was the order of which that was supposed to play out you know I've moved a lot of things around um, I've put scenes in in the order that I thought worked better than what they were on the slate um, that's assuming of course the slates were even correct you know sometimes I mean people just shoot in order uh, in order of the slate sometimes on a low budget production they just give it whatever number you know i i didn't know I, I couldn't account for this i mean sometimes you could tell based on the clothes or what was happening what scene was supposed to come before or after which other scene uh, i like this uh time square footage is really cool i love that it's like a time capsule of the 80s it's it's so cool um you know but uh yeah i uh i didn't really know um, the order, the only order that I knew was what was on the slate. Um, and I had to trust whether or not that was right or, or not. And so when I, when I eventually laid everything out to do like a rough cut of the film in the order of which the, the, they were listed on the slate, a lot of things really didn't make sense. And that's when I really knew that, okay, I had to kind of do my own cut of this movie and move scenes around to where I thought they worked the best. I love the Ninja three domination. I obviously, obviously they put that in for a reason. Cause if you guys know, you know, the ninja boom was like big in the 90s, or sorry, 90s, big in the early 80s with, uh, you know, Canon doing uh, Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and then Ninja 3, The Domination. Um, ninja movies were all the all the rage. So obviously this was trying to capitalize on that, and uh, which is no surprise that they try to, you know, um, present this to Canon to get to get made to to finish the movie and to be honest it's, I'm not surprised that <laughs> Canon passed on it too um, but I'm so glad they did because now here we are with it and it's so much better than it ever would have been um, but yeah so you know I had to make the choice whether or not to keep the silly stuff or keep the stuff that didn't work and that was a really difficult balance I would say the places where I did the most amount of work were probably in the fight scenes, um, the fight scenes is probably where I worked the hardest to sort of uh, make sure it was as smooth as possible. Because here's the thing. John Liu is a good martial artist, okay? I'm not sure this film actually represents that. Um, if you have watched any of his other martial arts films, again, uh, Invincible Armor, um, Secret Rivals, 
they're both awesome movies. There's others that are great movies too, but the fight scene at, at the end of Secret Rivals is so good, and John Liu's leg work is awesome. And uh, I don't really think this this showcases his, his fights at all. I think it's partly a product of just you know sort of maybe bad low budget filmmaking. Uh, maybe these guys here uh, weren't really good martial artists that he could fight against. But you know if you look at a lot of the setups, they're they're like these basic setups where you know the ninja would stand there and then they would all be surrounded and they come at him one by one and he would fight them. But um, you know the the fight scenes aren't great. Uh, I think they're they're fun and funny, and I think you know they they add a lot of humor to the movie. But if you're a martial arts fan or a John Liu fan, you, you know that these fights aren't really good and don't represent what other like martial arts movies are really like. I mean, some of the martial arts movies from the '70s are just phenomenal. I mean, the the fight scenes are crazy. Um, the athleticism and talent of those guys was was just crazy. So, and again, John was. John's good. Uh, you know, I just don't think this movie really showcases it, but I still wanted to keep the fights as smooth as possible. I mean, some of this stuff is cool here. This tracking shot is cool. Um, so I would try to cut out all the like missed punches or bad kicks. I mean, you know, some of them are still kind of in there, but I tried my best to make the fight scenes as smooth as possible. Um, everything else I tried to kind of go with what seemed to be their intention. So, you know, again, something like that flip over the car with the roller skates you know it's very obvious that he has roller skates one second then he doesn't then he has them again well you know I could have cut that scene out but I chose not to because I, I you know I knew that would play for a laugh and you know balancing the tone of this was probably the hardest thing in this movie like that's a good example right there you see the ninja the close-up of, of his face he whistles to get their attention. Well, that's not what was supposed to happen. Those little like um, balls of uh, powder, uh, the eggs of powder that he has, he you can kind of see the guys have them on, on their face. They were getting hit with them. That was how that scene was supposed to start. But it was so bad. Like everything about it, they were missing everybody. You could see uh, his hand in, in the shot and everything like that. So, you know, I, I cut it with the ninja's face. I got that shot from another scene and then had him whistle to interrupt the fight and then get this. <laughs> see, that was like a well-placed. So that was to cover up some of the bad fighting. And, you know, it plays as like a funny moment. And it also co covers up the fighting because, again, you know, these guys just surround him and they come at him one by one. And, you know, if there's a missed punch or a missed kick, you know, I what was I going to do about it? There was no coverage. They almost he rarely cut in for anything, you know, so I had to kind of work and, and do my best to make these as smooth as possible. And, you know, I, I again, had to do my best to, like, make these scenes work. Um <clears throat> I guess let's talk about the, um, so, you know, back to the editing, I, I want to talk about the scanning process because I kind of glazed over something really quickly is the very first footage that we saw. I had mentioned that, uh, you know, that scene, um, by the, uh, by the docks or by, by the water where the ninja kind of runs into the punks. That was the very first stuff that we saw. And like up until then, like we had all become very excited about this project, but nobody had seen a single frame of film. So when I presented this to the bosses about like, let, let me take the project over, finish it and, you know, get some genre actors to dub the voice. Wait, I love this. Okay. Hold on. Kicks him. Kicks him. 
I watch him roll out of frame. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh every time. Um, uh, yeah, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, uh, we, you know, I presented this to the bosses uh, here at Vinegar Syndrome uh, to let me finish the movie, but I hadn't seen a single frame of film, neither had they, and we didn't even know really if it was an action movie. We assumed it was. We're like, okay, New York Ninja. All we hoped is that there was a ninja in New York maybe getting revenge for something bad that happened to him. Family gets killed, wife gets killed, whatever. And that was basically the plot, which is great. Um, but yeah, when we put on the footage and we saw that very first fight, now again, we were seeing it in pieces. Um, we were seeing like the, the takes and uh, we instantly, Ryan and I, Ryan Emerson, one of the owners here at Vinegar Syndrome, uh, him and I stayed late on a, a 4th of July. It was like right before the week in a 4th of July in 2019. And we uh, we stayed late, scanned some of the footage to watch it, and we were, we couldn't believe what we were seeing. Like we knew instantly we had like a little gem here because I mean, all of this is just so crazy. I mean, even this scene here, I you know, these girls tied up. I, his acting, it's, oh, it's it's also good. Um, I probably need to talk about the other voices that we had dubbed here. Um, that's a guy named Matt Mittler, by the way. Uh, Matt Mittler, he did. Uh, he was in um, uh, Battle for the Lost Planet and Mutant War, which was two movies that uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out. He was also in uh, The Mutilator, uh, and he does a lot of voice work. He's done voice work for cartoons and stuff. I think um, Pokemon. I think he did voice work for. Um, you know, we brought him in. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Battle for the Lost Planet and Mutant War, so. Uh, that was just like a fun little casting on our end. And, uh, he, you know, partly because he did voice work and, um, you know, he's one of the few that actually did a, a voice for his character. And, uh, you know, Freddie Cufflinks, as I call that character. And I, I, he did an amazing job. So, uh, yeah, I'm, he was, he was a great, great casting choice. Um, yes. Randy Rydell, the, the, uh, the reporter is the amazing Linnea Quigley um she she's been in a number of movies that Vinegar Syndrome has put out and uh Jack oh, <laughs> I love this they just flip his car over this stuff was pretty good I mean I give them credit for shooting this and uh actually I want I want to say to 3B I had mentioned them earlier sorry I'm, I know I'm jumping around a lot there's just so much to talk about and this movie's already moving pretty fast um 3Beep is a company in New York that we used to do all the sound design. So, like, every sound that you hear in this movie, uh, they had to put in. And that's incredible. I, that, that scene right there with the car getting smashed up, like, when I was editing this, again, I was editing silently. So it's easy for me to just, like, put in whatever shots I want. But I, I knew in the back of my head that, like, some of this stuff was going to be really hard uh, to put all the sound work into. And that was one of those scenes that I remember thinking to myself, man, I feel bad for the guys that are going to do the sound for this. Um, I, I cannot say enough good things about 3B. They did an amazing job. The sound design, that scene right there with the car, like go back and listen to it. And it sounds like that was all there. And it's not. There wasn't a single piece of audio that was just all silent and everything that was there had to be laid in and all these punks running around you know gang members you know all their little lines all that kind of stuff that stuff for the most part wasn't written by me 
Um, they brought in a lot of guys to come in and, and do this stuff. And, you know, there was a lot of ad libbing and just, you know, they were trying to fill the sound with, uh, or, you know, fill the space with whatever sounds they could. So, you know, a lot of this, like, uh, swearing and, you know, talking junk and all this other kind of stuff that they're doing, you know, that was all to kind of fill as much space as possible. So that stuff I, I didn't write. Um, but yeah, uh, Sorry, I've I've kind of jumped all over the place. I, I hope <laughs> I hope you guys are are following along with everything that I'm saying here. Um, so yeah, we. Uh, well, you know what? Let me let me talk about the dialogue. Oh, I, well, I didn't say who the voice actor for Jack was. That's a guy named Vince Murdaco. Um, Vince Murdaco was in a couple of uh, movies that we put out, one in particular called L.A. Wars. If you haven't seen L.A. Wars, I highly suggest that you see it. It's this awesome, um, I love New York Ninja written with like marker on there. <laughs> um, L.A. Wars is this awesome movie that uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out where uh, it's like a low budget action movie, but it's like the quintessential action movie. Like everything, everything is so almost cliche that it almost plays as a comedy but like at the same time it's just so awesome so anyway i highly recommend you seeing la wars um vince murdaco um vince murdaco was in mostly 90s action films and um he he did a few movies with um don the dragon wilson who is the guy that voices um the ninja here the voices john lou so i named john john lou in the movie um i don't know what his name was originally supposed to be i think according to the script or something it was supposed to be like kenzin or or, or something along those lines uh, i i don't know it doesn't really matter um i'd watched some other john lou movies and in his movies, he usually, like in his American dubbed movies, he was usually called John or John Lou. So I just thought it would it would fit for this. So, you know, I just called him John Lou as sort of a tribute to him as well as like a tribute to his films. So uh, John Lou slash the ninja was voiced by Don the Dragon. Um, you know, that was, that was a difficult casting, if I'm being honest, because early on, you know, we had made the decision that anybody that we casted at Vinegar Syndrome, not the people that 3Beep casted, um, 3Beep casted a lot of voice actors and people that they work with, but um, like the main roles we wanted to cast ourselves here at Vinegar Syndrome, and we wanted to use people that were in Vinegar Syndrome movies. It was a very uh, important uh, thing for us to do, and so we had to find like an Asian genre actor. Um, and, you know, we haven't put out a lot of martial arts films at Vinegar Syndrome. Um, maybe by the time you see this, there will be more. I hope there are because I'd love to put out some more martial arts films. Um, but, yeah, we uh, there wasn't a lot of, like, Asian um, genre actors to choose from. And uh, luckily we had acquired the rights to... Um, one of Don of the Dragons movies, a movie called Whatever It Takes with him. And um, with him, um, Andrew Dice Clay and um, who else? Oh, Fred Williamson. And so, uh, you know, we, we cast Don the Dragon and I, I think it's perfect. What I like about Don is that like he he is Asian, but is very much from America. And so he's got an American quality to his voice. And I think that really works well for the dubbing, um, you know, because any of these movies that were dubbed, usually like uh, any of the martial arts films, 
you know, they're all Asian characters, but they're dubbed by either British people or English people, or English or American, I should say. And, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, I, <laughs> the acting, I love this like little shirt too. That would like never fit him. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, we wanted somebody who had like an American kind of sound to their voice as well to kind of match, uh, what would have been done in the day. So anyway, so Don, the dragon came in, uh, he was great. He is such a nice guy. I can't say enough nice things about Don. Um, it was exciting for me because I'm a big fan of all that stuff, especially like nineties movies. Uh, Don was mostly in a lot of like nineties action movies, a lot of like straight to video kind of stuff. And I, I grew up on all that. I, I love all those movies. So getting to work with Don the Dragon was like really cool. Um, I remember the first Zoom phone call we got with him and he was just sharing stories with us and talking about um, him and Chuck Norris. Uh, he was he he was on the, like the uh, martial arts circuit with Chuck Norris and was friends with him. And, you know, I don't know, all this all this great stuff. Such a nice guy. And I'm, I'm so glad he was a part of this. And I. I think his uh, his voice really works well. This kid, by the way, I'm just gonna throw. I don't, I don't. We didn't pick this kid. Uh, Three Beep did. They had worked with him before. Amazing. This kid is amazing. So uh, he did a really good job, and I, I'm really glad you know that uh, he was on board because we we had no idea what to do about the kid. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to say that while we're here. Um. Yeah, look at that. you can kind of see looks at the camera a little bit. A lot of people look at the camera in this movie. If you go back, if you go back and you watch, um, you'll see a lot of times where people looked at the camera. Sometimes I try to cut that out when when possible. A lot of times it was mid shot. Um, sometimes I would let them sneak through because you know, again, balancing the humor uh, versus like the seriousness. Th that was a big thing for this movie too. This is so you know, I, I know I haven't talked about all the voice actors yet, but when we were moving forward with this movie again i we knew very much what the film was but i wanted to take it as seriously as possible so when i talked to the guys from 3 beep that was that was the direction i gave them you know i i didn't want the punches and and the kicks to be like over the top and campy you know um i uh you know even the 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 voice actors like play it serious you know some of the thugs the the goons running around um you know they they play it up with a little humor here and there and that's fine i don't have a problem with that they i mean their outfits enough are you know are ridiculous enough so you know i didn't have a problem with them being played up for humor but i told three beep you know play it straight play it straight in the sound design play it straight with the characters um, I told all the actors that play it straight. You know, there was a few choices here and there for additional humor, but playing it straight. And then the sound, uh, or sorry, the, um, the score for which, uh, Voyager three did, which I'll talk about more as we go along here. Um, play it straight, you know, treat this like, treat this like it's this badass ninja movie, you know, and we all know that it's not. I mean, it is. It is to some extent. I mean, I think it is. Um, I, so I love the way that that like a whole bullet just pops out like perfectly formed <laughs> shoulder into the cup. Uh, stuff like that is. It's just so amazing. Like you couldn't. You couldn't write this movie now. Like people would try to make a movie like this now and like do sort of a retro type movie. You just can't. Like this. Is what's so cool about this is that you know we were 
it's almost like going back in time and shooting an, an 80s movie. Now, granted, none of us shot it. We had I had no control over how it was shot. You know, all I did was really edit it and and be the driving force behind everything. Um, you know, so in a weird way, it feels like my movie. In a weird way, it doesn't. Uh, you know, so but it, it's just so cool to almost like go back in time and get to make an 80s movie it's something that like I, I think being a fan of this type of stuff we all kind of talk about how like great it would be to make movies in the 80s or like pay tribute to stuff in the 80s and um you know this is the closest you can get it's, it's going back in time and doing this um yeah all right uh i i guess Maybe I should talk about Voyager 3. I kind of lost my train of thought like I have many times already. Um, so Voyager 3. Uh, so, yes, we, we told everybody to play it serious. And, and yeah, play it serious when he comes out in, like, a red, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, it's so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing at I, I can't not laugh at this movie. I mean, to see him come out in a red Speedo and try to, like, stab some fish uh, just so good i love this scene i this was an important scene because I, I really felt like you needed to sort of establish like uh, a relationship between him and the kid here and uh because obviously that pays off at the end of the film um but this is just it's just like a fun cute little scene and it, this worked really well they actually had a fair amount of coverage on this scene like you can see i i could actually make some choices here which was really nice um but yeah so told everybody to play it serious of course, this scene isn't very serious, but um, so when I uh, when we were trying to find somebody to do the music, um, Brandon Upson, who is one of the long term uh, employees here at Vinegar Syndrome, he had recommended Voyager three and I had listened to them a little bit, but uh, I was kind of searching through trying to find uh, some some bands that I thought would be good for this uh type of that this stuff is really cool by the way i like all this just like raw footage that they got here and uh at like a halloween party that this was or a halloween parade this is really cool this is great it's a nice again time capsule of like 80s new york um but yeah so uh brandon had recommended voyager 3 and i i think i downloaded all their albums that night and listened to them and instantly i knew they were the guys i just something about them just seemed right to me I reached out to them. Um, Steve Green, uh, he, he's sort of the the head of the band, I guess I would say. He's the one who I did the most like interacting with. He he wrote a lot of this stuff with the other two members, um, but he was basically like my main contact. Um, you know, Voyager Voyager Three basically makes uh, soundtracks for movies that don't exist. And there's another number of bands out there like that um, that do these like cool kind of retro, um, usually 80s like synth based um, albums that are almost soundtracks for films that don't exist. Um, and I listened to a number of them, but something about Voyager 3 really stuck out to me. So, uh, yeah, I reached out to Steve and you 100 percent on board. And it was kind of like the same thing for them. Like they've made these soundtracks for like uh, essentially fakey. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, that cut. I, I I had to do that. I had to open the scene with with those with those boobs. Um, you can't not. Um, shit. All right, I'm gonna gonna divert again. Uh, Voyager three, awesome. They did an awesome job. I will, I will hopefully get back to that soon. Um, Michael Berryman, 
the one, the only Michael Berryman from the Hills Have Eyes. He is doing the voice of the plutonium killer. And uh, I just wanted to bring that up because <laughs> he had to do all of this stuff for this scene. Um, I, once again, cannot say enough nice things about Michael Berryman. Um, once again, when we were trying to find somebody to play the bad guy here, I mean, the plutonium killer is such an over-the-top character, and we had to really find somebody who could who could carry this. I mean, he's the heavy in the film, and he had to have a certain tone, and we we had uh, considered a, a, a many different people. Um, we hadn't really reached out to too many. Um, we just really weren't sure which direction to go in. And Brad Henderson, uh, who was basically like one of the producers on this, he, he helped cast a lot of the voice talent. Um, and he does a lot of uh, uh, the producing for the special features here at Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, Brad was originally the one who recommended Michael Berryman. And um, once again, we at the time didn't have a Michael Berryman film, but we ended up um, acquiring the rights to Auntie Lee's Meat Pies. And uh, if you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. It's a really good movie. And next thing I know, Michael Berryman's in the Vinegar Syndrome camp. And I'm like, okay, well, this is interesting. Let me let me consider that. But, you know, you're, you're so used to Michael Berryman playing certain characters um and i i didn't really see him playing like the heavy you know carrying this like the, the plutonium killer um so i was i was kind of unsure and brad was like well you know think about it think about it so really i went home and what i did was actually watch some of his interviews his behind the scenes interviews or like interviews at horror conventions and I just listened to him and I listened to his raw voice when he wasn't playing a character. And when I listened to it, I was like, okay, you know what? I think, I think they're right. I think, I think he's the way to go. And you can just tell that Michael Berryman is such a good actor. I mean, you know, maybe some of the roles he gets aren't so great. I, I don't, it's, it's up for debate. I mean, he's been in some obviously amazing horror films. Um, but you know, he's usually cast very specifically and, uh, you know, bottom line is he's, he's just a really good actor. And so I knew right away, uh, when I had listened to those interviews, I was like, I think this is going to work. I, I really did. And so we, we reached out to his agent and got him involved we did an inter uh, like a Zoom uh, meeting with him, and uh, just an absolute nice guy, wonderful, and he killed it. He came in, he did all his lines in a day. Um, you know, he's not a young man by any means, and uh, you know, he just went all out. I mean, there was a lot of like yelling and uh, all that crazy stuff with the plutonium, but <laughs> but that scene, I have to tell a funny story because that scene, um in in the limo i was like as soon as that popped up i was like well yeah this is gonna kind of be a fun scene and you know super professional he just kind of made a joke and was like hey you know what i've uh i've been asked to do a lot of things in movies like let's just do it you know and and he went for it and like nailed it we did like two takes of it and he just uh he just went for it super professional uh funny guy um, really couldn't have been uh, uh, more of a pleasure to work with. So, you know, I had to give a shout out to Michael Berryman there. Um, so, yeah, back to Voyager 3. Um, I worked with Steve. I basically gave them a silent version of the movie. There was no audio that had been done at that point. Um, I gave them a silent version and the version of the script that I wrote so they could at least understand uh, if they had any questions about what was happening in any of the scenes. And... Um, uh, you know, Steve and the band just, they went off and just recorded the music. Like I trusted them that they would, 
you know, deliver something that was good. And I, you know, I, I never questioned it. And I'll tell you when I got back the first like round of music and I sat down and listened to it, I was just blown away. They, they put like their heart and soul into this thing. And I, I really can't say enough good things about the music. It's so good. Uh, do yourself a favor, find the soundtrack, buy it and you know listen to it because you know it's one thing to listen to it when it's in the movie but it's another thing to listen to it on on its own and uh you know again for them it was like uh, you know a lot of bands have done these like sort of soundtracks to you know fake 80s movies that never existed but for them they kind of got to go back in time and do a score for an actual 80s movie so i think it was a cool experience for them and uh, it was a cool experience for me, and I, I really can't say enough uh, good things about Voyager Three. They they also like I will say when I got the music from them, like there were very little changes. They they there was a few things here and there that I was like, yeah, maybe we can move this here or you know whatever. But like very little changed. Like what they gave me is kind of what we ended up with, and it, they just nailed it like right off the bat. So uh, so yeah, so shout out to them for for doing such a great job. Um, okay. So we got these guys here. Uh, so the guy, um, the guy on the left there, I named him Rico. The guy on the right is switchblade. Um, the voices that were done by them were from, uh, some of the guys that worked at three beep that were involved in the dubbing of this movie. Um, so when, when I reached out to three beep, you know, they, I have to give them a lot of credit too. I know we've already talked about like the sound design, but I have to talk about the dubbing specifically because this was a lot of work. I mean, you have to think about all the dialogue that's in this movie and, uh, you know, they were very instrumental in helping me, uh, get this movie done because, you know, I had never really dubbed over a movie before. So, you know, I, I would watch the dialogue. Sometimes I could read the lips. Sometimes I couldn't. Um, and if I, if I could read the lips or I could read a word here or there, I would try to, I would, you know, write down that word and then kind of try to build before and after it and try to get it, you know, close. Uh, and they were very instrumental in helping with the dubbing and really making it work. So shout out to them. I do want to interrupt here to talk about these two. Um, so on the right, uh, this woman here who, uh, plays detective Janet Flores, as I call her, um, that is the one, the only Cynthia Rothrock. And I was so happy <laughs> to get Cynthia in this movie. She has very few lines and I, I wish she had more. Um, but at least she's playing a character. It's like a, it's the only like female character that sort of fights in the movie. So I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, the fighting is not good. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think you know that. Um, but it, I was, I was, so she was like a last minute addition as well too. Um, I'm a huge fan of Cynthia's movies and it was so cool because, you know, again, she had, uh, she had done, um, scenes with, or sorry, scenes. she had done movies with Don the Dragon before and Vince Murdaco. So it was like a cool little kind of like family that, uh, had been kind of brought into this. And, um, we've put out a number of Cynthia's movies here and yeah, I, I was so happy to get her in there. Um, yeah, well, I should probably talk about Linnea real quick while she's on the screen. Uh, well, so Randy Rydell, uh, the the um, reporter, I got her name off of the paper that's in the movie, so that's why she's named Randy Rydell. That seems to be her actual name, her character name. Um, 
So we got Linnea Quigley to come in, and again, uh, Linnea was so cool. I, that was like such an honor for me as well. I've seen so many of her movies. I mean, she's one of the best scream queens that's been out there. Um, that's out there. Uh, we've put out so many movies of hers here at Vinegar Syndrome, and she's just she's so much fun. And she, you know what was great was when we were recording her lines. Like she was getting a kick out of this movie. Like you know she was laughing and found the movie funny while we were making it and was just really like enjoying herself. And I, I knew like, again, that we kind of had something here because, you know, the, you know, an actor could look at this and kind of be like, Ugh, I don't know this movie. Like you, you either get it or you don't, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, um, this is for a certain type of audience. I think, I think a lot of people are going to like this movie. I think a lot of people are going to find the humor and the fun in this movie, but it's, it's not for everyone. You know, it's definitely for genre fans and people who like watching, um, you know, crazy movies and, um, you know, somebody like Linnea to have her come in and watch it and really just enjoy it. And while she was working on it, I, I, that was like, a. Uh, kind of like a compliment like I knew I knew we had something here and what's really interesting is we actually were able to get in touch with the the woman who played the original reporter Adrian Meltzer she's one of the few actors that we could actually hunt down from the original production and what was really funny is she asked to see what we did with the movie and when we sent it to her um she had responded back and was like, wait, I thought you guys dubbed my voiceover. She's like, where did you get the, the voice from? And we're like, oh, well, that's Linnea Quigley. She's a she's a genre actor, a scream queen, whatever you want to call her. And she's like, oh, my God, she's she sounds a lot like me. If like for a second, I thought that was my voice. And uh, that's so cool. I'm, I guess like I guess we kind of nailed that one. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, again, you know. Linnea, everybody, we, we told them to play it straight, even like a scene like that where like Michael Berryman had to go, ah, you know, because the light was blinding him, you know, uh, why the plutonium killer can't look at light. I, I don't know. Uh, I had to make that work. But, um, you know, uh, she got it. Everybody who was involved in this movie got it. And, and that was a, a really big kind of not only just compliment, but just um, – I don't know, it gave me a lot of encouragement that, that we, we had something here. Um, so I'll just say this too. So Wayne Grayson um, did the voice of Rat Tail here. That's one of the people from uh, Three Beep Headcasting. If, if you look up his IMDb, he does a ton of voice work, especially for cartoons and stuff like that. And he actually uh, did uh, the voice of Michelangelo and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, one of the uh, one of the versions of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And uh, you know, like that was a great addition. I mean, it's just it's like a character that only has I think he has what like two lines in the in the whole movie, but it's like we really needed to have the right voice. And that's where like uh, Three Beep came in, and they were they did a good job of, of casting the voices. You know the the main people that we casted um you know we put a lot of focus on them and not necessarily the other voices and i just had to trust that three people would find the right people and you know he's not on the screen right now but um the pale man as i call him the the guy who meets in the limo with the plutonium killer um, you know, I wanted to kind of give him a British accent, um, because there's the whole Interpol story, uh, which will be coming up in a little bit. I'll, I'll talk about that hopefully when, when we get there. Um, you know, uh, they, they casted, um, 
I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on his name, the gentleman who who voiced the Pale Man, you know, that was their pick, and he he killed it. Like, I, I can't say enough good things. Like, that was one of those voices where I wasn't sure what it was going to sound like, and I wasn't there for that kind of stuff. Like, I had to trust 3Beep to get the right voice because we were, we were so busy with a lot of things. I was so involved. I couldn't be there for every session. You know, I had to let 3Beep do their work. And so there were a lot of voices that I didn't hear until – you know, we, we got back like basically a rough cut and sure, you know, there could be some changes and we could recast people if we really needed to. But, um, you know, this was just one. Oh, okay. This is the scene here. Um, he just came in and killed it. So, uh, yes. And, uh, the detective here, that is Leon Isaac Kennedy. And if you guys know who Leon Isaac Kennedy is, um, it was awesome that we got him in this movie. Um, he was in a number of genre movies, mostly known for the penitentiary films. Um, he was in Lone Wolf McQuaid with Chuck Norris. Um, Leon, it was so cool. To me, this is like kind of like a, um, I don't know, I'd say like a, maybe like a Tarantino casting where you, you get somebody who was in a number of genre films like in the 70s and 80s and hasn't really worked in quite some time and you know for him to come on board for this movie was so cool I was I'm so happy that we got Leon he is a nice guy totally got what we were doing um totally respected our company it was one of the first things that he said he's like you know companies like Vinegar Syndrome you know you guys are 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 essentially like saving the lost films you know it's one thing to preserve and restore you know historically significant films but you know, these genre films would go lost or forgotten if, if somebody didn't try to preserve and rescue them. And especially a film like this, like this could have easily been forgotten, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It just felt good to have him comment on that and to get, to kind of get what we were doing here. So, um, I think I've covered all the voices. If there's anybody I'm missing, hopefully I'll, I'll grab them when they're, uh, when they're back on screen. Um, yes, but, uh, you know, that scene that had just played there. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the editing again. This, the scene that had just played, um, when, uh, the pale man and, uh, detective Williams are, are walking in the alley. It seems like that, that became such a key for me because so as I was writing, the dialogue I would I would sit there I would go through the voices I or you know I'd watch the movie I would try to see try to guess kind of what they were saying try to see what would work and what wouldn't and then sometimes I would write some stuff and then I would go back to the edit and I would like maybe tighten or like trim the edit a little bit here and there to kind of like hide a word or, or something if necessary so there's a lot of like kind of sort of you know back and forth but I think I've established this, but if I haven't, when I laid the movie out on a timeline, what, you know, I, again, I used the slate to cut all the, this, uh, to sort of figure out the order of the scenes. And when I laid them all on a timeline for the original, like for the first, like sort of rough assembly, the, the scenes seemed to be a, out of order a lot and, or either, whether they are out of order or it was just a bad filmic. I, I don't know. I can't really say. So that's when I, you know, I moved a lot of scenes around and changed a lot of different things. Um, and, uh, sorry, if, if you looked, uh, well, it's too late now, but if you looked real closely, the, the, the reporter, um, that was not Adrian Meltzer. Uh, that was actually another person I had to kind of 
I don't know. I guess I don't know if Adrian wasn't there that day or they were shooting stuff with somebody else, like if they had intended to have a different actress. But if you go back and watch that, you'll actually see there's a couple of shots. I had to really, really, really hide that. And there wasn't a lot of coverage in that scene to begin with. And so uh, it, was, it was sort of very difficult to make that work. But um, so I don't really know what happened there. I don't know if she just wasn't on set. And so they used like a double um, and thought nobody would notice. I, I don't really know. But um so yeah, so you know, I laid everything out and everything kind of seemed out of order, and that's when I started cutting scenes and moving things around and and all that kind of thing. But then I I had to still tell the story, like I had to still get from one scene to another, and really a lot of these things just seemed like random scenes that like loosely fit together, and you know that scene, for example, with the pale man and the detective walking down that little alley. Like that became integral. I have no idea why they were meeting. Even after finding the script and reading it, I, I couldn't really even tell you why those two were meeting. I don't even, I think it was in the script. I don't even remember, but it didn't even make sense in the script either. Cause I'm like, well, what the hell is he a good guy or a bad guy? Like he's meeting with the plutonium killer, but then why is he meeting with the detective? You know? So what helped is like a scene like that. I just got so lucky. There's a number of times I just got so lucky in this thing. And I definitely got lucky in that scene because, you know, you, it's the camera's kind of over their shoulders. So you don't really see their mouths all that much. And so I could kind of fill it with whatever I wanted. And, um, you know, I had a lot of questions. Why, why was the plutonium killer, the plutonium killer, you know, <laughs> uh, what's with the light you know what's with any of this like it definitely seems like the movie almost has like a little bit of a comic book tone which um arthur schweitzer the original producer kind of said that they were sort of going for that and i i guess it kind of makes sense uh when you look at it um but you know i had a lot of questions as to why certain things were happening like I got that girls were getting kidnapped. I got that the pale man, the plutonium killer were meeting. Um, wasn't really sure why, but they kept exchanging these photos. But then why was the pale man meeting with the, the, the detective? And so I threw in that whole thing with like Interpol. And luckily I just made it very quick and it worked. And, uh, you know, it's, it felt very 80s felt like an 80s plot point to me that there would be a international prostitution ring that's trying to be broken up by Interpol. You know, it, it's over the top, but it works. And, you know, the plutonium killer, I was able in that scene to try to get quickly as much information as I could about him that he worked for the CIA and, you know, fell victim to a radiation experiment. And now his only, you know, uh, source of weakness is light. You know, I was able to try to get that in as quickly as possible. Uh, thank you to the voice actor who was able to squeeze all that in in that short amount of time. Um, side note, I will say that that was one of the... Um, things that I actually got right in the script. Uh, when, I, when I read the script, the uh, plutonium killer was supposed to be part of the CIA. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. So I, I kind of nailed that with uh, with no information. I mean, you know, he's got a pen with a dart in it. And, you know, he, he does the whole thing with, like, a mask with, you know, Jack's face. It seemed very uh, Mission Impossible to me. So I was like, okay, we'll make this guy from the CIA. So, you know, I guess... You know, I can't pat myself on the back too much for some things because a lot of things are sort of spelled out in this movie. I mean, it's not an overly complex film, but I will say, and this is where I will pat myself on the back slightly, is that, you know, it was very confusing sometimes to figure out what was supposed to be where and how to link all this footage together. This scene here, like this didn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't understand why these three goons, as I call them, um, 
like double cross plutonium killer or whatever. Like they seem to be working for him, but then they kind of double cross him. And I, I didn't know why. And once again, I never really got the answer in the script, not anything that really helped. So, um, you know, I had to come up with this whole thing about like, obviously, uh, the plutonium killer had an interest in Randy Rydell. Um, why I wasn't really sure, but I didn't really need a reason. I figured that would just be accepted if he was like, you know, I, I want the reporter. Okay, fair. Um, but you know, this, like, obviously they had never met him because they would know who the plutonium killer was if they saw him here. You know, so I had to try to figure out how to make this scene work. Now, you know, could I have lost some of these scenes? Sure, but, like, I needed to link things together, and I needed to tell, you know, kind of the most coherent story that I could. And, uh, you know, trying to, you know, use just whatever I could in this movie to make it work. I will say, too, there's nothing that is, like, we didn't shoot anything. Everything was original. Like, aside from, like, the credits and all the sound work and, uh, and and all of that, like, um, I used just footage from the movie. So it's like, we probably could have shot some like well-chosen inserts if we really, really wanted to. But I thought part of the challenge of this movie was using what they had, you know? So there's a number of scenes here where um, I couldn't tell if the scenes were finished or not. You know, again, with, with no script to work off of, and again, even after finding the script and reading it, didn't help with a lot of the scenes. I couldn't tell what was always finished and what wasn't finished. Um, sometimes scenes would end abruptly or, or they would change kind of midway, so I'd kind of feel like maybe they were trying to feel it out on set or like whatever was supposed to be in the script kind of went rogue, and then they, they started kind of just shooting this other stuff and maybe kind of like, it just felt like they were trying to feel out this whole movie on set. And so a lot of it just, you know, again, I, I've said it a million times, just didn't make sense. Well, hold on, I love this. <laughs> that was them. They shot that in reverse. That was their plan. Um, it seemed like that was their plan to have him spring up and jump out of the way of the car. So I can't take credit for uh, for that edit. That was uh, that seemed to be their choice, but uh, I love it, and it makes me laugh. So um, <clears throat> what was I saying? Um, yeah. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, <sighs> boy. Oh, yeah, I, I you know, uh, I couldn't tell what scenes were were finished and what weren't, and, and that made it really difficult. Um, so I had to take scenes that were probably unfinished and had to try to figure out how to finish them. And, uh, you know it wasn't really an easy task. I mean, my goal with this film was for anybody to watch it. Now, if like, you're not listening to this commentary and you don't really know anything about this movie, my goal was to have you watch it and not realize that it was finished 35 years later, that it wasn't finished in 2021. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's literally the future. You know, we're literally living in the future. Um, at least when I'm recording this, I don't know when you're listening to it, but, um, you know, uh, I mean, from 1984 to 2001, or 2021, sorry, geez, to 2020, I'm just distracted by Rat Tail. This whole scene is crazy. Um, you know, it, it's the future. And I, I wanted 
people to watch this and really feel like they were watching a movie from from 1984 that it was finished in 1984 so you know we tried to make everything as authentic as possible we try to make the credits look as authentic as possible the sound as authentic as possible in fact um i i think on this disc the plan is to have two different um uh uh, sound uh, not soundtracks like uh sound options um, one is like the original one. Cause again, this was all done. Like the sound was all done digitally, but we didn't want it to sound digital. So we actually did a version where we took all the, the sound design and, uh, and took the digital version and laid it off to tape and then took the tape and laid it back off to digital. So it sounds, you get that, like kind of compresses the sound slightly and you get that like tape hiss. Cause we, we really wanted to hold on to the authenticity of the 80s as much as possible and really just to kind of pay tribute to the version that was trying to be created like i i i didn't want people to uh again know whether or not this was finished in in the 80s or finished in uh 2021 um so you know it has actually created a little bit of confusion at times um where people haven't really understood the level of work that went into this movie so hopefully this commentary will kind of clear some of that up um i'm again i'm sorry if i'm jumping all over the place because there's there's so much i i hope i've covered everything you know we're kind of a, not really approaching the end of the movie but you know, there's maybe about 15 minutes left as i i love that this character is clearly just uh freddie cufflinks with a fake mustache and <laughs> I mean, the, them reusing these actors. I mean, hey, you got to do what you got to do, you know? Um, okay, well, actually, you know, I'll talk about this while it's on the screen. A lot of people don't understand what the hell is going on here with Rat Tail. Um, luckily, I'm a fan of kung fu films, martial arts films, so I knew he was drunken sword style right here, or that he was doing what's called drunken sword style, um, or at least a version of it. <laughs> I don't know if it's good or not. Um but I remember going through the footage. So as the film was being scanned, um, you know, we had hours of film that had to be scanned. And so uh, Ryan Emerson, uh, one of the owners here, and then Brandon, who does a lot of our film scanning, um, they they did all the scanning on this film. Um, we Trying to work this into our normal schedule here at Vinegar Syndrome was really tough. Um, we released an average of four movies a month through vinegar syndrome that have to be scanned and the restoration has to be done. And it's a lot of work. And, uh, that's, this is why I worked on this thing. This is probably why it took two years to finish this because I, I basically worked on it nights and weekends, um, mostly because we couldn't really kind of fit it into our normal schedule. But Ryan and, um, Brandon were the ones that were, uh, were, were scanning this and they would kind of just like this, I, like, what the hell? Like, why is the picture bleeding? I, I, I don't know. How did he even get a picture of him? I, I don't know. I, these are the questions that keep me up at night. These are the things that I had to try to make work. But, I mean, like, I needed that in there to establish this here that, like, oh, is the big reveal. Oh, wait, he's actually the plutonium killer now. Or it's the plutonium killer in, like, a Jack mask. Um, by the way, Jack, I believe, is his actual name. I got that from being able to read the lips. So, um 
this scene is cool here. I like I like the way they the blowgun. They actually like shot this well. I like this. Uh, anyway, uh, Brandon and 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 Ryan would scan the footage and they would uh be seeing all the stuff before me and they kept coming to grab me and be like, dude, you got to see this now. Like, uh, it's all this like crazy stuff. And that was the thing is like as we kept seeing more and more footage, we kept getting more and more excited about this movie. Like, um. It's just, it's so wacky, like, everything that they're wearing. I know a lot of these guys, like, they're wearing, like, obviously this guy was playing Rat Tail. Like, they, they're putting them in different costumes so you don't recognize them. But it's just, like, the, the, the crazy look that all these guys have. I I hope, I hope people, I don't know. I hope this movie becomes popular enough that maybe at screenings or whatever, people will actually, like, dress up as, like, their favorite punks. Like, that would be so cool. Because, <laughs> I mean, all of these costumes are so doable, you know? Um. Oh, uh, hold on. I, I like this. When he frees these girls here, there's one girl. She's she's my favorite. I don't know where she is now. Okay, the one right there. And watch. I love the way she like she milks every scene that she's in. The one with the short hair there. She, she's so cool. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where she is now, but if you're still out there, uh, yeah, she's like my favorite girl. I I just every time she's on. Uh, my eyes are like drawn to her. The irony is she actually kind of reminds me of Trash from um, Return of the Living Dead, um, which Linnea Quigley played. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. But she's got that same kind of look and whatever. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this movie so many times. Like, I've, I've, I know it pretty much inside and out. So it's like you see all these little things as you go along. I hope that as you guys go back and watch this movie, I hope multiple times because um, I hope you find the fun in it every time that you watch. I hope you see little things. You'll probably see more problems, <laughs> more problems than I want you to see. Um, but, you know, I, I hope you find more fun little like nuggets as we go along here. Um, okay, so this is the fighting that I was talking about. Like, you know, this girl, at least, at least she fights. So it's great that, like, Cynthia Rothrock is doing all the little, you know, even though she didn't have a lot of uh, voice work, you know, she's doing all, like, the moves, all those sounds and stuff. You know, this scene, I mean, okay, that fight was not very good, let's be honest. But I'll tell you, it goes on longer and it's way worse. <laughs> so I'm just being honest. Um, so it's like, you know, I had to kind of cut it down to make it work, like cut away to things, then cut back, you know, just to kind of try to make them work. See, here's, here's my girl again. Just, just I don't know. I just, <laughs> she's just milking. It. I love it. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if, if, if this ever like goes on to maybe be a midnight movie or play a lot more, um, at theaters, like I encourage people to dress up as their favorite punk in the movie. I would love that. That would be the coolest thing. I, hell, I would do it. You know, I might dress up as this guy. This guy's kind of my favorite. Um, but, uh, yeah. And again, like Cynthia doesn't have any real lines in this part, but at least she's, uh, you know, doing the, uh, the uh like the grunts and the the moves and all that kind of stuff so that like that is authentic so um yeah anyways uh <laughs> i think this fight too actually goes on a little bit longer um you know i cut it down uh to like i think there was stuff before that fall i i love the like the crash zooms it's so like it's so like asian um like Hong Kong, uh, like martial arts movies. Like you can see that there's a sprinkle of that in here. Uh, um, there's a girl milking it again. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sure it was actually cold out there. I'm pretty sure they were shooting this in December. So, um, but yeah, like you can see, I think that's what makes this movie really work well is like, it's like this weird American production, but because John was directing it and starring in it, um, I think maybe, you know, 
some things didn't work because he was probably too focused being behind the camera um, and not really focused on like the ninja or the choreography. I, I don't, I don't really know. I can't speak for John. Um, we tried to get in contact with him. Um, actually, maybe I'll tell that in a second. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's like a weird mix between like an American movie and like a, like a Hong Kong martial arts film. And it's like neither of them kind of work, but the odd blend just works so well. And I, I love this. I love how he pulls out this mirror and just shines in his face. Like, where did he get that mirror from? And, I, you know, again, like if you've watched a lot of these ninja movies, especially like um, Revenge of the Ninja and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, you'll see that like the ninjas, because ninjas are almost supposed to be like mystical or magical in a way, like they almost can pull stuff out out of nowhere that's actually not that bad i mean the the mask wasn't super great but like that reveal is pretty good and i i, I love that scream there i'm glad that we got Linnea to do a scream um that was that you know considering she's a scream queen that's so cool um i just for me this this was cool i i got to do on a personal note working on this movie was, was such an awesome thing to do um i was a fan of john lou movies prior to even making this movie um, I, I love uh, Hong Kong martial arts films um, and uh, you know I, I when I I just feel honored to be the one to sort of bring this movie back to life I mean this is a lost John Liu film that's so that's so cool but then you know not only that but then to have all these voice actors come in and you know we had we had a lot of fun um, and for me it was it was so cool to work with a lot of these you know i didn't really get to work with them like on set like you would with like a normal film but even still you know getting to work with them in any capacity was just so cool um all these people are awesome so like yeah even here you're gonna see you know he pulls this where did he pull that from you know it doesn't matter and again that's actually what helped me with the end of the movie which i'll talk about in a second but while i'm here even though this is probably the best scene in the movie this 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 was actually pretty cool. I give it up to John for um, for getting dragged on the ground. There's some behind-the-scenes footage, which will probably on, be on this disc as well, too, where you see a little bit of what he kind of went through doing this. Um, you can tell he was on, like, uh, like a board with wheels at that point. Um, I love that little flip and kick, uh, uh, kick and flip into the trunk. That was cool. Um, yeah, man, wow, we really are getting near the end of this. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's talk about John Liu real quick. Um we try to find him, and that's that's about all I can really say. Um, Brad went on a hardcore search for him. Um, we were able to get in contact with some guys who were heavily involved in the like martial arts film world um, now and back in the day. Um, a lot of people know who John is, um, but to our knowledge, he lives off the grid in Vietnam. That's at least what we were told. Um, we found a guy who claims he was a friend is a friend of his and is in contact with him every now and again. We were told that he wants nothing to do with any of his movies anymore. If we were trying to reach out about them, uh, we weren't going to get very far. He actually, I think, questioned if it was New York Ninja or we, we mentioned that it was, or, uh, well, I guess what Brad mentioned that it was New York Ninja. And he's like, ah, yeah, he, he like he wasn't surprised that it was New York Ninja. Um you know, uh, which is surprising because a lot of people just don't even know this movie exists. Like some people in the martial arts world, I'm sure, have heard that John Liu had another movie that was never finished. Um, but, uh, you know, there's very little known about this movie. But anyway, uh, you know, we said that we wanted to try to get John involved. And uh, this guy said he would reach out to John and let us know. Um, he eventually got back to us and said that, you know, he had talked to John. John had no interest in being involved and 
we are basically given the message of good luck. And uh, so that's it. So, you know, we tried to involve John. I don't know if John will ever see this. If he does, I, I hope he's happy with what we did with it. Again, I, I tried to take it as seriously as possible and, and just have fun with it and make it a fun, entertaining movie. And, um, you know, this is uh, this is what we came up with. And, you know, I think it works. I, just, I love that little fan thing there. That was cool. Um, all right. So while we're here, I might as well just start talking about it now. Um, because if I wait too long, I won't be able to get it all in. The helicopter. This, when I say the other scenes in the movie weren't finished, you know, a lot of times I can make them work or, you know, I would either cut the scene if it really didn't work or I could find a way to either intercut it with another scene or end early, whatever. I made a lot of scenes work is basically what I'm trying to get at. This was incredibly difficult because basically they didn't finish shooting the end of the movie. They didn't shoot the climax. And when I found the script and found out what the climax was even supposed to be, it made no, it made no sense. There was something with like, it, it was similar. The ninja was supposed to be hanging from the helicopter. And then I don't know, the plutonium killer was supposed to throw grenades at him or whatever. But basically the plutonium killer kind of gets away at the end. I think the intention really was to leave it kind of open-ended um, to maybe do a sequel, um, especially if they were trying to do like an early comic book type movie. Um, you know, it would make sense. I mean, the plutonium killer is such a, a, a a recognizable character like why wouldn't you want him to continue into a sequel you know um so there was something with poison I, I don't know to be honest it didn't even really make sense but you could tell that they didn't know what to do with the end of the scene and when I say that there were times that I got lucky I got so freaking lucky with this because there was no footage to really work from what you see with the helicopter is like I I had to make every little bit that I had work and you know again we'll get there in a second some of this fight stuff here isn't really bad I like this there was coverage here you know uh, like stuff like this was cool like I had things to to work with it, it, you know um, like close-ups on the eyes and stuff like that 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 stuff is extremely helpful so um, this funny collapsible sword uh, <laughs> anyway um all right so back back to the helicopter stuff so obviously i'm sure you've watched the movie if you're listening to this so you already know what happens you know it ends like sort of abruptly with a helicopter explosion and what i knew from the very beginning after going through the footage early on when i was putting all the scenes together and doing the rough cut and all that kind of stuff i knew right away that there was going to be a problem with the helicopter because we just didn't have any footage i i mean i really can't stress it enough obviously i made it work but like i didn't really know how to make it work and so i had tried a couple of different things um there was actually some extended fight footage in this scene uh that got cut they were i think the fight was supposed to extend longer and they they, they didn't finish shooting that either so i tried to do something with that that didn't work um i think that'll probably be on the b-roll uh special feature as well here see he's hanging here i gotta give him uh i don't think this is john i think they had like a stunt guy for this um but whoever that is i give them a lot of credit i mean this is like a legit stunt i mean they are just hanging from this helicopter and they fly off pretty far i don't keep it going as long um because i couldn't uh you know you'll 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 see i you know i have to cut out of it you'll see more of it in the b-roll i added some more in there because uh i, I thought it was worth seeing how kind of far they fly out and how high and this dude just hanging from the helicopter um but you'll see so you know i have that shot and then we'll cut to this shot 
and so in case you're wondering what I think is supposed to be happening here, um, there's no close-ups here. I think he's putting a shuriken on his foot and then throwing it at the plutonium killer's face right there. So in case you were wondering what was happening, but again, there was no close-up. I'm so lucky I had this shot. I didn't know what the hell was going on. This shot here, and I'm so glad that the 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 pilot actually punches him because I knew that the only thing I could do was end this thing with an explosion, which is what you're about to see. And uh, luckily we had that, and then boom. <laughs> So that was my only option. Like, luckily, they had grabbed some like cutaway shots of helicopters um, in in other scenes. Um, they obviously knew they were going to be doing something with the helicopters. So during the production, they just grabbed various shots of the helicopters. Um, so you know that's one of the ones that I, that I use anytime I saw a helicopter. I cut that footage out, put it aside because I knew I was going to need it too. Um, but you know, with the fact that the ninja pulls out so much stuff from his clothing, I knew that like I could probably end it with with a bomb if need be. And so that explosion, um, so this is where like things kind of just worked out in a way. That explosion um, was pulled from another 21st century distribution film. There's a movie called The Executioner 2, and there's like this stock footage explosion that uh, I think has been used in a couple of different movies. Um, but uh I was watching The Executioner 2 and saw that explosion and I was like, oh my God, I, I can use this. And knowing that that was a 21st century distribution film just made it perfect. You know, because like, again, if I was the editor in 84 trying to figure out how to, like, how do I finish this movie? How do I finish this climax? This this the most important part of the movie without anything to work with, well, we'll just grab the stock explosion. Yeah, we've used it in this other movie. And I'm like, oh, you know, so I was like, oh, this is this is great. So um, luckily, uh, you know, I added a little dialogue with the pilot being, you know, the plutonium killer being like, oh, I'll, you know, you kill the ninja. I'll make you a rich man. And yes, sir. And I was so lucky that we just got the that, that was the only like footage I had of that helicopter there with him punching. And so I, you know, it just it cut together. Well, I threw that explosion in. It's cheesy, but it gets a laugh. People love it. Uh, I'm, I hope you love it. Um, I love how he just kind of and disappears, gone. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know we're kind of wrapping up, getting to the end of the movie here. Um, I, you know, again, I've talked a lot. I'm sorry if I was all over the place. Uh, hopefully, a lot of this made sense. Again, it's a very difficult process, sort of putting this all together, but it came together, and I'm again really honored. Um, to have been the one working on this film. Um, if you enjoy it, um, that makes me happy. All I want is for people to appreciate this film. Um, again, it, it feels like my movie, but it doesn't. Um, I'm just glad that I could be the one to help kind of bring this thing back to life. Um, yeah, I mean, with that said, I mean, long live Ninja. I hope uh, I hope it becomes a new cult film, and I, I, I hope all of you guys out there enjoy it. Um, so I, I love this, this, like, you know, he winks at the camera and I was like, well, I got to use this at the, as the end shot. I have no idea if that was the intention. It seemed like that was the intention, but I, I did that with the, the end and then boom, the ninja will return in LA ninja. Will he? I don't know. Time will tell. I guess we'll, we'll all find out. But, uh, I, I had to end it with that. Um, kind of reminded me of Sonny street, Sonny Chiba street fighter was like the, um, you know, uh, Sonny Chiba will return in like Street Fighter 2 or whatever it says at the end. Like, 
that was where the inspiration came from. So, you know, I, I, I had to do that. Um, you'll see all the, the names now. Uh, hopefully I didn't miss any of them. I wanted to kind of do, so I, I had to build this end credit sequence. I wanted to try to keep it, you know, I wanted to showcase these people's names and who, who they played um, because the characters, you know, like Freddie Cufflinks, he's not named Freddie Cufflinks. I called him Freddie Cufflinks, you know, so I wanted to get sort of the characters' names and the actors as well too. Um, so, you know, I built this little credit sequence here so you can kind of see uh, some of these people. Again, um, these are some of the people from 3B, but they played larger roles. Oh, Bill, that's that's who it was. Thank you, Bill. You killed it as the pale man. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of get these, uh, these names because these people worked really hard. They played like starring roles. Um, I will say, you know, not only did I build this credit sequence, um, uh, but I, I also, uh, you know, came up with the opening, um, uh, like not scroll, but opening text. Um, I really wanted to kind of set the scene there. I didn't know how to start the film again. Credits, I don't know what they had for credits or what they intended. So, you know, I did that little, uh, you know, like art card at the beginning with like 1984, or, you know, crime in New York, blah, blah, blah. I think that was a cool way to start the movie. This stuff here, I'm going to try to talk as quickly as possible before we run out of time. This stuff right here is uh, was footage that was supposed to be in the movie. Uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be a montage or whatever. Um, you'll probably see more in the deleted scenes because uh, this was supposed to be part of something else. But um, I had to use this for the end credits. This song that's playing right here, this song by Bronx Style Bob, was actually originally made for the original version of the movie. We got so lucky to track this down. Thank you, Bronx Style Bob, for letting us use this song. Um, this was made for New York Ninja. As you can tell, he's singing about the ninja. I'm so glad we found this Voyager 3, by the way. Killing it. Love it. Um, but it's like I had to use this song over these guys. Um dancing and all this is so crazy all of this stuff in the end credits is so crazy but it just it fits the movie and uh it couldn't be a more perfect way to go out so uh with that said the credits are running out they're short these are all the people who worked on the sound uh everybody in here is is post-production um unfortunately we couldn't really give credit to anybody who was part of the, the original production other than a few people that we knew um who were involved in the original production but if anybody's listening that, to this who was involved in the original production like thank you i i hope you're happy with how this came out um i'm proud of it I, i'm so glad i worked on it I, I hope you guys are glad uh that that it came out this way and all i can say is thank you and i, I like it says at the bottom i hope we made you proud so thank you for listening to this commentary and uh long live new york ninja thank you bye